0: This is the latest Dear God, thank you for this day that you've given us to come together and learn about your word. Please help us to take what Mr. Gary has to say and apply it to our lives. And please help us to be more like Nehemiah. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we are looking at the obstacles to rebuilding the wall. And you just had so many things that uh, Nehemiah had to deal with. And the last thing we talked about was all the problems internally with some of the Jews uh, taking advantage of their poorer brothers who were in need and charging them interest and, uh, you know, uh, taking over their fields and even uh, trying to force them to sell, sell their children to pay the debts and the high interest rates. And Nehemiah was very bold in. Uh, opposing that in demanding that they give back what they've taken and that they not uh, take advantage of their brothers. Now, as we talk about this in Nehemiah, and Nehemiah, of course, in a lot of this is just writing this in the first person. And he's really asked these uh, richer Jews to make some sacrifices for their poorer brothers. He goes ahead here and he adds a an event, kind of a situation that occurred over the future years to illustrate his own willingness to make sacrifices on the part of his brothers. So would somebody read in chapter 5, verses 14 to 19. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year until the 20th, 32nd year of King Artisan. Twelve years. Neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions, but the former governors who were before me labored the them and took from them bread and wine besides for each other to serve. Yes, even my servants were over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued to work on this wall, and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the wood. And at my table were one hundred and fifty Jews and rulers, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now, that which was prepared daily was one ox, six days sheep, also foul with prayer, and once every ten days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet, in spite of this, I did not command the governor's provisions, because the bondage was heavy on these people. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all of that I have done. Okay, so Nehemiah is talking about a period of time that includes these next twelve years, as evidently he was governor. Uh, how all that was as far as him being governor for that time, I'm not sure. I, we didn't know until this time that he was governor or did he become governor as after the uh, walls were rebuilt. I don't really know. I wouldn't have thought that he had given the king a 12-year uh, time period, that he was going to be gone. So I'm not sure how all that was, but evidently he was governor from the 20th year to the 32nd. But during this time, he does not receive what he was really entitled to, which was this governor's food allowance. Prior governors had required that. Apparently, that was sort of a tax that was imposed on the people to provide for the governor's table. He'd feed a lot of people. And uh, but but Nehemiah didn't take that. Now it's it's pretty amazing when somebody is due something that they don't take. You know, a lot of people try to take what they're not doing. But to have the right to receive something from the people and more or less waive, you know, uh, dismiss that right is is remarkable. Why did Nehemiah not choose to receive this food allowance? Yeah, Lucas? (laughs) Okay, that's part of it, yes. You've got verse uh, 18. Uh, The servitude was heavy on this people. He knew how difficult it was for them, and so he didn't want to impose an additional burden. What's the other, other motivation he mentions in verse 15? He fears God. Yeah, he fears God. He respects the Lord. He's concerned about the burden on the people. And therefore, he does not receive what he was normally entitled to. Um, he was there to build a wall, not to build an empire. Um, and yet... Uh, look at all that he had to do. There were 150 Jews and officials who ate with him. So he had a lot of expense in providing food. In fact, what was the daily fare? How much, what all was cooked every day? One ox, six sheep, birds, wine, and who knows whatever else accompanied all of that. That sounds like quite a bit. You know, uh, any of you have mothers that fix uh, an ox and six sheep a day uh, for your family to eat? Wow. Uh, but he was just feeding a lot of people. Now that compares with Solomon. You remember how many uh, oxen and sheep uh, Solomon uh, prepared daily or had prepared daily for his table? His was 30 oxen and 100 sheep. So this isn't quite up to Solomon's standards, but still it's a lot that evidently Nehemiah is financing from his own pocket. Leaders have to take the lead in making sacrifices and showing generosity. That uh, kind of reminds me of somebody else who didn't take money that he was entitled to. Who would that have been? You know, well, maybe. I'm thinking of somebody else. Paul. You know, how many times would Paul have had the right to accept money for his preaching, but in many cases he did not do that. In uh, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, eight, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. You know, it's a remarkable thing to think about the Apostle Paul. You know, of all the people, if anybody, you know, had the right to insist on being supported for his work in the Lord, wouldn't it have been the Apostle Paul? And yet, he didn't want to be a burden to the Thessalonians, so he kept working in leather work, evidently, that seems to have been his profession, so as not to burden them. There were times he received help. But there were a lot of times that he did not do that. Uh, sometimes we have almost a sense of entitlement. You know, well, I just deserve this. I deserve that. Instead of being uh, eager to sacrifice what we're entitled to when it would help in serving others. And uh, so that's just a very encouraging attitude. You know, I think about you guys. Um, who supports most of you? Your parents, right? You know, I think it speaks well of sons and and daughters of parents who, especially when they recognize their parents are in financial situations that's more difficult for them, when they don't ask for things that they think they're entitled to, when they don't accept everything that, that they might otherwise feel like they could demand, and when they're helpful in, in trying to uh, help out with family expenses. Not every family is in a situation where that's helpful or needed. But when we are, we should never think in terms of, well, I think, you know, I, my parents should buy me this. They should do that for me. That, that's just selfish. You know, it's much better when we have the willingness to give up something that we think we might be entitled to. To be helpful. So we always need to think in terms of being generous ourselves, not in being demanding. This attitude on Nehemiah's part, I'm sure, helped the people through this time to be more generous. And it shows that Nehemiah was not just imposing a a burden on these rich Jews that had loaned money. He follows the same principles throughout his life. Comments and questions on this section? Jason. Can you comment on the fact in verse ten he was, uh, you know, possibly guilty of doing what the other brother were doing? Yet here he's using it himself as an example of seemingly the opposite thing. Is there a tiny thing here that you know, or is this going on all at the same time? Yes, I, I think certainly. Uh, you know, he's talking about the governorship from here for the next 12 years. So perhaps he started this after 510. That'd be a possibility. Sometimes we're inconsistent. Sometimes we may be, you know, not being generous in one area and yet foregoing what we're entitled to in another area. He does not specifically say uh, in 510 that he had charged the interest but when he says, please let us leave off this usury, at least he's including himself, but not let's not charge it anymore. So I, I don't know about all that, but I would say perhaps it's a timing. Other thoughts, Joe? Lucas gave the answer of Jesus. Oh, that's interesting in light of Matthew 17, as far as the temple facts. No, Jesus if anybody if you ask a question, who had the right of the Paul? The the Lord would be the only other one. Right. Yeah, good point. Yeah, he didn't know it, but he paid it. Because he got it in an unusual way. But uh. <laughs> Other other thoughts, comments, questions? Stephen. At the, the end of this, um, remember for my good, or my God, all that I've done for these people. And the book was end that way as well. It's uh, from some kind of like, writing the book with that, what? saying that, or... Oh, I mean, he does tend to say that at the end of a section. I think it's certainly interesting that he often will say that. He lives his life thinking about the Lord, seeking the Lord's approval, thinking about what the Lord's going to think about this or that. You know, we tend to live our lives thinking about men's approval. And what other people are going to think about us. It's so much better if we're living thinking about how the Lord views us. And, I mean, he wants to please the Lord. Almost reminds you of a a child wanting to please a a parent. You know, wanting his parents' approval, trying to do the things that he believes would honor the parents. Uh, So it's interesting that he will continue to do this. He just always is thinking about God. I mean, the fact that he keeps mentioning the Lord all the time. To me, it means he always has the Lord on his mind. And that's something we can surely uh, benefit by imitating. Other thoughts? Okay. Oh, food. Yeah. Noah. you got to raise your hand high, Noah. Sure. Can you take me at the end of verse 18? Yes. Because the are bonding with on these people. Didn't they make an oath that they wouldn't? Yeah, I assume the bondage here would be other taxes that the Persian emperor was requiring of them. That's my guess, because you're right. I don't think the Jews were loaning and, and uh, requiring interest from the people, but there was the, the Persian empire's tax burden on the people. Yeah, good question. Anything else? Well, we're not done with the... Uh, uh, enemies' efforts to try to stop this rebuilding. I mean, things are getting pretty critical. The wall is continuing to uh, get higher, and uh, they're getting closer to being able to close up the gates and all of that. And uh, so this is this is going to be a problem. What are they going to do now? I mean, the, the tactics that they had tried chap- back in chapter 4 don't seem to have worked very well, so they're going to have to pull another rabbit out of their hat. So chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, Erech, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall, and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. All right, so you've got the enemies, they're seeing what's going on, the wall's been built, and we're just kind of waiting on the gates to get hung. I mean, we're getting really close to the time that Jerusalem's going to be secure. I mean, they haven't got much time left if they're going to put a stop to this project. And so what is their idea as to how to, uh, how to stop this? Yes. You know, sometimes that is a pretty effective tactic because there are a lot of times when a leader can make a lot of difference to what's happening. They think if they can figure out a way to dispose of Nehemiah, then maybe that'll stop the whole project. Leaders are strategic. And so what's their plan for trying to get rid of him? Yes, they, uh, they invite him to come down to the plain of Ono and meet, you know, uh, maybe they're almost like saying, well, you know, we're gonna, we've decided we're going to have to live together, so let's be friends and have some kind of a, a summit conference. Let's have some kind of a peace conference, you know, when you just need to get together and talk about this and, you know, we'll work out a way to, to deal with everything. And maybe, I i don't know if they're proposing the Plain of Ono as sort of a neutral location or exactly what, but I know what they're thinking. They're going to ambush him on the way. That's their idea, is that they thought if they could bring him outside of Jerusalem and bring him down to the Plains of Ono, they'll attack him and kill him there. I don't know for sure... Whether Nehemiah knew that at this point wouldn't surprise me if he kind of smoked that out. Um, But but either way, what was his his response to that? Yeah, I'm too busy. (laughs) I've got more important things to do than to come down and meet with you. It's always helpful when someone is able to say no to distractions to not be sidetracked by things that are going to just get them off of what they need to really be working on. And, and Nehemiah has commitment and conviction that he's got a job to do. He's not going to stop that job to go down and meet with his enemies. He's going to remain true to his principles. Now, uh, how, how does that sit with the enemies when he says no? Lucas? So what do they do? Ask again. They ask again. And Nehemiah says, no. So what do they do then? They ask again, and what did Nehemiah say? And what do they do then? Four times. You're, they are persistent. I, I really think they had high hopes for this tactic you know, they really think this is going to work and they're just not, uh, not going to take no for an answer you know, it's kind of a sign of their desperation perhaps I bet you they've already written the letter that they were going to send back to Jerusalem something like, you know, we're very sorry to have to tell you there's been an unfortunate accident and unhappily Nehemiah has passed on or something like that, can't you imagine that they, they just can't wait to send that letter back to Jerusalem. And so they just keep insisting, keep insisting, keep insisting. Is that the way Satan does us sometimes when he tempts us? You know, kind of tries to wear down our resistance. You know, kind of just, uh, you know, we get tired of fighting. You know, why does he keep tempting me? Why does and, and we just sort of like, well, you know, might as well give in. You know, I might as well get it over with. That Satan loves that approach. He is very persistent. And we have to hold to our principles and not weaken in that. Uh, To just have firm convictions. And we just keep saying no. And keep not going down that road. Our rest comes in heaven. We're uh, on the battlefield until then. And if the enemy keeps... You know, charging at us keeps attacking. We just got to keep beating him back. And keep saying no. I mean, ultimately, in some senses, what Nehemiah is saying here is not that hard. He's saying, "No, I'm not coming down." I mean, it's not like anybody's forcing him to go down. But we have a hard time when people try to talk us into doing the wrong things. Just saying no. They all—they have no leverage over us. But we just. We hate to always say no. You know, we hate to always disappoint people. You know, it, it, they're, they're, not, they're not up to anything that's going to help us. We know it's going to be bad for us. But, but that consistent, no, I'm not going to do this. And the willingness not to be distracted, not to allow ourselves to be uh, sidetracked by other things. That's very important. Nehemiah is a great example for us in this. So he just frustrates all of these efforts to try to uh, do him in. Thoughts and comments on these four verses? Dan. You guys really appreciate Nehemiah's um, unwillingness to be distracted, even distracted by his temptation. I think sometimes we are resistant against being ensnared, but we'll still let like, it distract us. Um over down here, that statement succeeded when he causes us to give primary efforts, secondary things, and secondary effort to primary things. Yeah, that's exactly right. We have to keep our focus on what we need to be doing. Keep working on the Lord's work, and not just being diverted to what doesn't really matter. Other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It would be easy for him to almost have an ego trip on this idea of, well, I'm going to go down here and we're going to have this big meeting and I'm going to be this great diplomat who's going to arrange some kind of an accord and things like that. You know, we just need to do our work. (laughs) Just do what's right. We're not going to be some big shot. Just do what the Lord wants us to, and that'll be that's all we need to set our, our aspirations for. Scott? On this thing about saying no, we can also listen to my more and more attempts when we have a, like a weak no. Say your friends are trying to get you to go to a, a movie that you know is going to be called or about or thing. You know, well, I'm, I'm, I've got some homework i got to do. Or I'm, well, I don't have much money. Well, I don't... Instead of letting them you know, no, I'm not going to do that, you give these Weasley answers, and that just keeps it coming, coming, coming. Excellent point. Reminds me of Jacob telling Rebecca, well, I just don't think it'll work when she wants him to impersonate Esau. Instead of saying, no, that would be wrong, I won't do it, as well, I'm afraid my father will detect it. Well, any time we give an answer like that, the devil will figure out a way around our objection. So that firm no. That's the only way to handle any temptation. Steve? It's amazing how being busy can be such a good thing or such a bad thing. Um, and I think a lot of times Satan gets us to be so busy that we have no time to do what God wants us to do. Um, We're here in Nehemiah, is so busy with what God, what God wants him to do that he doesn't have time for the temptation. And uh, it's not that to be busy. Jesus is busy. But us just we have to be busy with our Father's business. Amen. Great point. Yes. Other thoughts? Okay, look at 5 to 9. They're, they're, they've got to come up with something. 5 to 9. The same way I'm valid for the fifth time in a third time open that the case. I know we're in the court among the nations and just in all the subjects that you that is why you are building the wall, and according to these stories, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up a prophet to proclaim, the you in the There is where they can you do and, and now the king will hear of these stories, So now come and let us take the count of the dead. And then I said, him, saying, No, such things as you say have been done, so you have, for you are inventing them out of your own mind, for they are all wanted to frighten us it will not be now This is interesting. Fifth time, Sanballat sends somebody down to Nehemiah to try to get him to meet with them, but this time the tactic's a little different. What is this messenger sent with? A threat. With a threat, a letter. Not exactly a threat, it is, but it's this letter... And he says, now listen, it's being reported among the nations, and Gashmu, that's probably another name for uh, another word for Gisham, says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. That that's why you're rebuilding. Well, you're going to try to become king. And that you've even already appointed prophets to declare you as king. And it's going to be reported to the king about all this. We really need to meet together. Now, he's almost posing as someone who has Nehemiah's welfare at heart. I, I'd sure hate for these rumors to get to the king. <laughs> you know, I'd sure hate for anything bad to happen with that. So we really need to meet together. You know, um, I, I really think you, we need to sit down and maybe you can clear yourself of some of these rumors because this is what's being spread around. You know, and and, uh, a lot of times the enemy tries to present himself as a friend. You know, tries to come at it from the standpoint, well, really, you know, I have your best interest in heart. And wouldn't it be terrible if these horrible rumors got spread around? Wouldn't it be terrible if the king heard that Nehemiah had this uh, secret intention of declaring himself king? And so it's almost like You know, hoping that Nehemiah is alarmed enough by all this to to rush over uh, to meet with Sanballat and plead with him to try to put a stop to these rumors. You know, he's almost saying, you know, I think if if we can meet together and I can be reassured that you're not doing this, I can probably get this thing stopped. But he's presenting it as... You know, I just hate to see this really hurt you, Nehemiah, so we really need to meet together. Isn't that funny? I mean, surely, hardly anybody would be totally fooled by this tactic. Uh, I think it shows you how desperate he is. For one thing, did you notice a detail about how that letter was sent? An open letter. What does it mean it was an open letter? It wasn't sealed, which means that anybody along the way can read it. You know, this is a letter that's uh, designed to spread the rumors, not squelch them. (laughs) You know, uh, anybody the messenger comes along on the way would be free to read it. Now, why invite Nehemiah to this special secret meeting in an open letter? You know, it's like, duh. I mean, clearly Sanballat is trying to get these rumors spread. He's not trying to put a stop to this. You know, sometimes the enemy gets so desperate that it it doesn't take a lot of brains to figure out what they're up to, you know. And I think Sanballat's almost to this point. He's desperate. He's got to find some way of getting Nehemiah to come down and meet with him so that they can ambush him and kill him. And look at Nehemiah's answer. I mean, you know, have you ever been falsely accused? You know, most people have if you get very old. I mean, and especially if you're doing any good, you're going to get some false accusations. I mean, some people are just going to, they're going to invent something. They're going to misconstrue something. It's just not going to be true at all. Now, obviously, if we are accused, we ought to examine ourselves. Some accusations are valid. Some we need to humble ourselves and repent. But sometimes it's just not going to be true. But when it's not true, it's not going to help us if we put all of our efforts and energies into clearing our name and proving it's not true. I mean, look at what Nehemiah does here. He sent a message saying, such things as you are saying have not been done, but you're inventing them in your own mind. I mean, wow. This is just a figment of your imagination. You know, it's not true. I mean... If Nehemiah had gone on some sort of campaign to prove that he wasn't trying to become king, that would have probably only served to increase the rumors. A lot of times it's just as well to just almost ignore them. You know, they're lies. It's not true. So Nehemiah doesn't need to worry about it. When it's all said and done, it doesn't matter what other people think about it. It matters what the Lord thinks. You know, you believe the Lord, you do what's right. And don't get all bent out of shape over everybody who's trying to twist what you say and, and, you know, sort of, you know, put a black mark on your name. Wise, discerning people will ultimately be able to see by your character and life if you're a righteous person or not. And what would you expect somebody who's guilty to do? You'd expect them to say they're not and to go on this campaign to clear their name. There's not a lot you can do sometimes about rumors and about lies that are told. Just serve the Lord. Just be what you ought to be. You may have your influence hurt sometimes with some people for a while. Just do what's right. You know, there's plenty of open doors. There's plenty of opportunities to help people. So if you get some doors closed, you know, walk through some others. But Nehemiah refused to let himself be distracted, not even by this. And again, he says, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. You see how much he is constantly turning to the Lord for strength, constantly thinking about God's help. Thoughts and comments on all this? Micah. Do you think there would have been any uh, after? Yeah, I mean, could be, certainly. Um, You know, the fact that the Jews perhaps don't have a very good record of uh, submission to uh, other nations when they've dominated them, that uh, that could add to that. On the other hand, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes knows him pretty well. I don't know what the chances would be that Artaxerxes would really believe a rumor like that, but it could be dangerous. Lucas. That's right. Lies are lies, and we're not going to be able to stop all lies being told. But we can live so as to make sure they're still lies. Other thoughts, Stephen. I just really love the, the very end of verse nine. But now I've got to my hands. Now, I'm, I'm just, yeah, and the enemies were trying to weaken his hands, so he prays to God to strengthen them. Stephen? Yeah, there's several lessons in the New Testament that speaks of this. Uh, first Peter 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evil leaders, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day their patience. Or Paul writes to Titus, in sound speech, it cannot be condemned. that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about it. But it's nothing true, that's evil. That's that's the best way to handle any of those situations. I mean, if you are living with good character, you're doing the right things, wise people, thinking people will eventually say, you know, I don't know about that situation, but I can see the character of this person, and I can see the character of his opponents. That tells you a lot. Non-thinking people, you're not going to be able to do much for anyway. So, and I mean, I think we get too maybe sensitive about unjust criticism. It's just going to be there. What did they say about Jesus? Wow. And sometimes just made things up. I'm impressed in Luke 23. One of their accusations is that Jesus said not to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, where did they come up with that? It's like, wow. You just, you just say the opposite of what he said. It's going to happen. People will sometimes just fabricate lies. They said about Jesus, you know, uh, he's a Samaritan, he's got a demon in, in John 8. Jesus responds, I don't have a demon. You know, I mean, what else are you going to do? You're going to act like a demon to prove you don't have one? You know, just, just deal with it. 2 Corinthians, Paul, wow. The attacks the enemies were making on Paul? In Corinth, the church that he had begun, that he'd spent a year and a half, that he'd spent a lot of time writing to and so forth, and still he's being unjustly criticized, and and, and I think he's a model of how to deal with those things. I mean, that can be very discouraging until we stop and realize that's going to happen, and it can make us bitter, and we can't let that happen. We're going to get some unjust criticism. Sometimes, some people are just going to misunderstand some things and so they're going to criticize us unjustly. We just need to keep serving the Lord. Focus on the Lord, not focus on trying to react against the people who are criticizing us. Do what's right, and and that's all that matters. William? I think it shows some responsibility, that we need to have our brethren as well. Like, if people at Corinth weren't spreading rumors about Paul... Or being like, no, I'm going to defend Paul. That would have stopped some of that from happening. But also, another part of that is uh, I'm not just defending them, are like, not orders, but actually taking the effort to, to, to let people know that they're reliable. Like in Second Peter, but when Peter first to Paul and says, you can trust him; he's one of us. And I think so often we spend so much time, especially on Facebook and things like that, and people are just attacking each other. It's usually over just really silly stuff that doesn't even matter. And we're too busy attacking each other over silly stuff. We're not going to be there to defend each other when there are serious accusations being made. Yes, yeah. There's there's too much trying to figure out what our reputation is. Uh, you know, I mean, even uh, sec, first and second Timothy and Titus talk a lot about wrangles about words and unnecessary conflicts. Um, focus on the Lord. Do what's right. Nehemiah just says, it's not true. He continues building. <laughs> you know, he's got a work to do. He's not going to be distracted, not even by this open letter. Other thoughts? Yeah. I kind of feel like he, what he really wanted was the wall to be finished. And if his name gets smudged in it, met the, the met. Yeah, that doesn't matter. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, when what we ought to want is God's name to be glorified. We want God's cause to be upheld. You know, it really isn't that important what people think about me. You know, we're way less important than the cause of the Lord. And yet we almost get those things confused. We almost get more defensive about ourselves and our own name instead of just serving the Lord and upholding and glorifying Him. Gary? It's interesting. We spend so much time defending ourselves against false accusations, but rarely will we come to the rescue of a friend good point as well yeah we we get too self focused uh, in some of those things and maybe feel sorry for ourselves too much uh, again I, I think one of the things that, that has impressed me a lot in recent years is just thinking about all the opposition faithful people of God have received they have from friends and enemies you know from from false brethren and from from you know people of the world so why would we think we're not going to receive opposition why would we think that nobody's ever going to unjustly accuse us nobody's ever going to reject us why would we think that we're going to be able to keep everybody happy with us and liking us and approving of us that's really not our goal you know Think less about what anybody thinks about you. And serve the Lord. I mean, I think that that to me helps. And I think we are very sensitive, I am, to what people think of me. You know, you want people to like you. You want to feel like everybody accepts you. Everybody thinks you're a good guy. Or everybody thinks you're cool. Well, I don't think anybody has everybody that thinks that anyway. But whatever's it thing? You know... The Lord's the one who passes judgment on you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, it's a little thing to me what you guys think about me. He said, I don't even judge myself. The one who judges the Lord, and he's going to disclose the motives in the last day. Opinion of other people about us? That doesn't really matter. So just focus on, here's the work of the Lord. Here's what we need to do. Let's keep doing it. If sometimes we get lied about, if sometimes we get unjustly criticized, well, there have been plenty of people who have faced that before, <laughs> people of God. Always be sensitive that there may be truth in the criticism. Don't just immediately reject every criticism, especially from a good brother. If it's a good brother that you have respect for that says, hey, I think you need to wa- look at this or watch out for that, they may even be wrong. Evaluate it in the light of the word of God, but at least give serious thought to it and be humble enough to consider the possibility that they may be helping you and the Lord may have sent them. Uh, other thoughts are comments? Scott? Sometimes also criticism from people that are upset with us will highlight something that we look at. Their motive might not be good, so when you dealt with something or had to do something, what a lot of people do is you know the best defense is a good offense, so they'll tend to say, "Well, you," and that's worth listening to as well, because like the guy in the bar fight, he's going to grab the handiest thing near to him. <laughs> you know, if they've noticed flaws in this, that's maybe what they're going to go for. So even those types of criticisms, their their motive may not be good, but sometimes it can be enlightening to us. Why were they so easily able to grab that? Yeah, that is a good point. I mean, there are times when enemies are more, they're not worried about uh, sparing our feelings, and they may point out things that are flaws in our character. I I think there's a balance in all of that, because sometimes they think a flaw in character is just being firm about doing what's right, and we ought to be firm about that. So. We really just need to constantly evaluate every criticism in the light of the word, in light of who we really are, be honest and humble. When we've done wrong, admit it and not try to be defensive and change. But when we really have when when they may not like our firmness for the Lord or whatever it is, but it's really what God wants, then don't worry about the criticism. You know, no, I don't have a demon, and just move right on, or whatever it is. You know, I appreciate Nehemiah's almost matter of factness here. It's just not true. This is a false rumor. And that's it. That. I think a great motto for this is what he said in the last verse of five: Remember me, oh my God, forgive me. That shows you where his heart's at. We need to say that prayer whenever we're tempted to divide back. Yeah. yeah. And, and just constantly be thinking about what does the Lord think about me? That's what matters. Isn't it amazing how diverse the opposition was? How many different tactics were used? Satan did not want that wall finished, and uh, but uh, hopefully this evening we'll see that it was. And I appreciate your uh, comments and discussions today. Go ahead, well,